you'll take your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, as we have been the last few weeks in the book of Philippians, and we'll be in verses 12 through 18 this morning. In a former community where I pastored before coming here, it was the common practice around uh, Easter to have Holy Week services, not just as individual churches, but churches within the community would partner together and gather together, and uh, we would meet Monday through Friday leading up to Easter, and uh, one day there would be a, on, at lunchtime a, a brief meal and a, and a worship service, and then it would be at one of our local churches, and then we'd move to another local church, and it wasn't just within our denomination, it was many of the denominations represented in that small community, so this would cross the denominational lines. And you can well imagine that there was a very broad theological spectrum that was represented there from uh, the, the quite theological conservatives uh, to, to very liberal. And uh, we would always begin the week uh, at the church uh, of the denomination. I won't, won't mention it, but uh, it was the most liberal church and most liberal pastor in town. He's a very nice fellow, very respectful fellow. Um, but as he was beginning his message or in the middle of his message, uh, one particular year, he made this statement. He said, you know, I, I, I find it wonderful that we can all gather together and we can worship together. He said, I just wish we could just tear down all of our church buildings and build one big one in the center of town and all of us just get together as just one big church. And that's a very noble not idea, by the way, but as a pastor, I, my, my, the first thought that came into my mind was, okay, who's going to be the pastor? <laughs> right? And I wasn't thinking that in terms of, self, of a selfish perspective, but more in lines of, well, if we could ever do that, as much as that is a noble idea, how are we going to interpret the Word? How are we going to understand the Scriptures? Will we approach it as we typically do, which is trying to understand what the Bible truly means, knowing that the Bible says what it means and means what it says, we take a, what is referred to as a historical grammatical approach to interpreting Scripture. There is a science behind it. We know that the Scriptures were written in a moment in time, in a historical context, in a cultural context, with a particular language, and uh, there was a, a particular intent on behalf of the author and ultimately God himself and there was a particular understanding that the original recipients had. And in order for us to understand the scriptures for us today, we need to do our best to get in the mindset of the original author and his intention and to interpret it that way. And as we understand it, there are not multiple interpretations. There is God's interpretation, God's perspective. And so uh, that was my concern, is how in the world, uh, are we, if we were to get together, uh, how will we interpret Scripture? Will we, will we be driven by a proper understanding of Scripture, or will we be heavily influenced by the culture that is around us, the whims of culture? And, uh, of course, I thought, and I still do, we'll never have one church until Jesus comes back, and then there will be one church. Amen? Now, I know someone may beg to differ and think, you know, shouldn't we try? Well, you know, they're actually trying in Germany. Right now, there is a, there's a, a church being constructed, a place of worship uh, in Germany, a new worship center being uh, built in the former East Berlin, and it's to be called the House of One. And it's being built, in fact, upon the foundation of a demolished church. So 
a church that used to be there, a Christian church. It's, that's been demolished. They're building it on this particular site. And it's going to be a place where Christians, Jews, and Muslims can all gather together and worship under one roof. Can you imagine? Each of these are monotheistic religions, by the way. Each, both Christians and Jews and, and Muslims, believe there is but one God. But each of these religions, under this one roof, are going to have their own uh, worship areas, their own sanctuary, but they're going to be con- uh, joined together, connected by a central hall that will serve as a, a place of public encounter. There's a theologian by the name of Roland Stolt who's involved with the project, and he says this, East Berlin is a very secular place. Religious institutions have to find new language and ways to be relevant and to make connections. In other words, what he was saying is that they're not worshiping Yahweh or Jesus or Allah, but they're worshiping diversity and multiculturalism and inclusion. You don't obey your God and the tenets of your faith, but you must conform to the secular ethos. As another theologian there said, this is not a club for monotheistic religions. We want others to join us. That's an interesting thought, right? Of course, we, we sort of recoil from that, the idea that we would give up our belief system and sort of have a, a common belief in some uh, uh, non-defined God. But what if this becomes the prevailing thought and idea in our culture? What if one belief system and one belief system alone is permitted, a a house of one? Amen, we do. If you knew and believed that Jesus is the only true God, would you follow him and obey him only? Even if the rest of the culture was saying, no, you believe this particular way. Well, our answer obviously is yes, we follow Christ. If so, how are you going to follow him? As the pressure comes in harder and harder against us, trying to dissuade us from the Scriptures and dissuade us from following Christ. How will you follow Him and obey Him no matter what? Now, if you think that this idea of the culture pressuring us into believe in one very thin strain of belief, if you think it's a theoretical concern and a theoretical concern, only think again. Because it was actually a concern in Paul's day in the, in, among the Philippian believers. You remember the context. Again, context matters. The Philippian believers, these Christians that were living in Philippi, they faced enormous pressures as followers of Christ and Christ alone. See, there was a sizable portion, a a, a population of former Roman soldiers that had taken up residency in the city of Philippi, sort of like the villages of the Roman Empire for soldiers. You know, they they were a very patriotic group. And they believed in Caesar, they believed that Caesar was the one true God, they followed him and believed in him, they were extremely loyal to Caesar. And so in this community where so many people were faithful followers of Caesar as former soldiers of the Roman Empire, Christians who were living among them, who were called to be loyal to Jesus and to Jesus alone, these other locals didn't like these Christians. They didn't like what they stood for, and this led to them being persecuted by the local populace. And all of this, this persecution was designed to discourage them from following and obeying Christ. And so they had this enormous pressure to give up their faith in Jesus, to quit following Him and quit obeying Him so that they could be accepted by the culture around them. So it's not a theoretical thing. It can actually happen in a culture. 
So in a situation like that, in a situation that could become true in our culture one day, how do we follow and obey Jesus no matter what? Well, this portion of Scripture that we're going to read here in just a moment really speaks to that truth. It's a call for us to obey, to obey Jesus no matter what, no matter the pressure, no matter who comes against us, no no matter who tries to persuade us, no matter how hard the culture tries to push us aside and to cancel us, we press on in following Christ and obeying Him. So we're going to read beginning in verse 12, and I'm going to invite you to stand with me, beginning in verse 12, down to verse 18, this encouraging word about obedience to Christ. Here's how the Word of God, how it reads. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Lord, you know the future far more than we. Though we can see the ripples in our culture of what could be in the future for people like us, people of faith, people who believe in you and in you alone in in an exclusive salvation through you Jesus that as our culture seems to be rapidly moving away from a a Judeo-Christian orientation away from you away from your word the Lord we are finding ourselves far farther and farther away from the mainstream of thought and philosophy and Lord already the culture is turning negative attention toward us and trying to ostracize us. And Lord, I know that it may be some time before we we experience this broadly in our culture, but Lord, persecution appears to be in our future. And Lord, it weighs heavy upon our hearts, not just for us, but for our kids and our grandchildren, for our brothers and sisters in the faith and our own country, who may one day be forced to make difficult decisions in order to press on in faith with you and obedience with you. Lord, we don't wait until those days to be prepared. We begin today. And so pray that you take this word and encourage us by it and let us live our lives by this call to obey, that we would be found faithful in the end and that we would be found worthy of gladness and rejoicing over our faithfulness. This we ask and we pray, Lord. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen and amen. Again, in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. It was Paul's assumption, his expectation, that followers of Christ, we who trust Jesus, will obey the Lord no matter what. Now, today's discussion, this passage, is really a continuation of the discussion that we began last week 
you'll remember that that key passage for the entirety of the book of of the book of Philippians there in the early part of chapter 2 we learn and are discussing the incarnation of Christ and we talk about how Jesus came to die upon the cross and in that passage it, 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 it speaks about the obedience of Christ in fact jump back up to verse 8 of chapter 2 where we read there that he Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And so it's in light of Jesus' obedience that Paul is now calling the Philippian believers to do the same. He's saying, look, you've been obedient. I've seen it with my own eyes. You were obedient in my presence. Uh, I've heard about it from others. You were obedient when I was absent. So here is what I want you to do. Keep being obedient. And that's the challenge that Paul gives us today, to keep being obedient, following Jesus no matter what, no matter how heavy the pressure may be to do otherwise. And so in Paul's exhortation, he's going to offer us three challenges on how we can do that, how we can press on in fellowship and obedience to Christ. In fact, Paul actually begins with a call specifically to obedience, which is the first challenge I share with you today, and it's this. We're going to keep following Jesus and obey Him. You and I, we need to work our salvation. So work your salvation. That's the first point. Work your salvation. Let me read again verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so there's that word obedience, obey. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. And then he says this phrase, work out your own salvation with, with fear and trembling. The little phrase there, work out your own salvation, is it's really an unusual statement for you and I. And what he's talking about here, he's not talking about you and I earning our salvation. Let's be very clear about that. For salvation is 100% the work of Christ. You, I, we do nothing to earn our salvation. Remember Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So God gives it to us, He's done it, He's given it to us. It's not a result of works, it's not about our obedience, so that no one may boast. So when Paul says, work out your own salvation, what does he mean by that? What is Paul's emphasis here? Well, he's effectively saying, make your salvation work in your life, work it out. And you make it work by obedience by obeying Him, by living a life of obedience. What he's really talking about here, he's talking about the portion of salvation in which we actually have a part, and that is sanctification. When Jesus saves you, when He's done that work, we are called to live in accordance with that salvation. When Jesus saves you, He transforms you. He takes you from death, spiritually speaking, into life. And so you are no longer the person that you were before, and, and your behavior ought to reflect that. I mean, the Bible talks about what salvation looks like and how, why we need to be saved. The Bible declares that we're all sinners. All have, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we deserve to die for our sins. The wages of sin is death, that we cannot save ourselves because there is none righteous, no, not one, that only Jesus, Jesus alone, can save us because no one comes to the Father except through Him. And that we must follow Him as the Lord of our lives. Jesus tells us, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that, that God has raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. So, so we are not saved by what we do, by our obedience. But here's the kicker. 
Obedience still matters. Behavior still matters. Your obedience is a sign that you have been saved, that God has done this work in you. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments. And, and, and we're told, but in John's apostle, uh, uh, epistle, uh, John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, and by this we know that we have come to know Jesus if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a what? A liar, and the truth is not in him. And so we're not saved by being good people. We're not saved by our obedience. But when Jesus saves us, his work in us, his transforming work in us is evident and, and our obedience becomes the fruit of the fact that we have been saved. So we're expected to be obedient to the Lord. And so when Paul says, work out your own salvation, what he was basically saying is this, act like a Christian. Now let me you know, qualify that because we all know some Christians who do not act as they should, right? When I say act like a Christian, I'm really telling you to act like Christ. Little Christians, act like you are a Christian. And this obedience will confirm the fact that you are truly saved. It doesn't save you, but it is the fruit, the sign that you have been saved. But I want you to note how Paul qualifies that. He says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling now what in the world does he mean by that well he's not talking about walking around and living your life fearing that you could lose your salvation at any moment you see again our salvation is not based upon what we do it's based upon what christ has done it's on the work of christ and his work is complete we have been sealed by his blood at the same time the idea of us taking, uh, working out our own salvation with fear and trembling means that we need to take our salvation very seriously because salvation has very significant and eternal implications. It is truly a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Nothing should be more important in your life than your walk with Christ and the salvation that makes that possible. Therefore, work it out with fear and trembling. So here's this, Paul, this call by Paul to work out our salvation, to, to live an obedient, sanctified life, to act like Christians should act. Why? Because our lives are no longer our, our, our own. You see, before Christ, we are in control of us. We decide for ourselves. But when we follow after Christ and we are saved by Him, redeemed by Him, we are submitting ourselves to Him, to His authority, and submitting ourselves to His Lordship. And so our lives are no longer our own. The problem for many Christians when it comes to obedience is that they want to hold on to control in their lives. It's as if it's all about them and what they want. And so if you ever see someone who claims to know Christ but doesn't seem to be living like that, they're, they're living selfish, unregenerate, disobedient lives, they may be thinking, well, I've already got my salvation and it can't be taken from me because, you know, the, the preacher said so. God has already saved me. I can just coast to the end of my life doing what I want. I can live like I want to because I'm forgiven and nothing else needs to be done until heaven, right? Wrong. God has not only saved you in the past tense, He is continuing to work in you. In fact, notice verse 13. He says, for it is God who works in you. That's 
present tense, not past tense. He didn't say God has worked in you in the past. It is God who works in you in the present moment right now, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. See, Paul is engaging a little wordplay here. He's saying, work out what God is working in you. Again, this is about what we call sanctification. Let me explain the term sanctification to you because it's really an important part, an element in the Christian life. Sanctification is the progressive work of Christ in your life that makes you more and more like Jesus and less and less like this selfish, self-centered, disobedient world. That's what Paul is calling us to do in these first two verses. He's calling us to sanctified living to living and acting more and more like the Jesus who saved you. To to be obedient, and he he tells us as much about how sanctification works. Because when salvation, that moment of conversion and transformation and being born again, as much as that is completely what God does on His own, on our behalf, without our help, sanctification is actually a, a partnership between us and God. It takes some effort on our part. It takes effort on God's part. But we're working together, He and us together, and we're working out our own salvation at the same time God is working in us. That's sanctification. And so redeemed and saved, and we know we have eternal life, but once that takes place, it begins this lifelong journey of working out our salvation and becoming more and more like Jesus. Obedience. And so if we're to overcome our own selfishness and our own self-centeredness, if we're going to find joy in, in, in this life in Christ, in, in, even though the world may press against us and try to dissuade us, we need to work out our salvation. Obey. Be sanctified. Live sanctified life. Here's the second truth. Not only do that, but be mindful of your testimony. So protect your witness. That is, as you are called to obey, Be mindful of your attitude while you're obeying. Paul says there in verse 14, get ready, this may step on a few toes. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. All right, anybody want to repent right now? And we jump to the the next point. We all struggle with this from time to time, don't we? Right? Do all things without grumbling or questioning. When you are doing something for the Lord, uh, and when you're doing it, when are you grumbling are you questioning are you complaining and when you're doing that what message are you conveying to those who are watching you and listening to you and watching your facebook feed hello it's saying that you're not happy with your circumstances that that you're not happy with what's expected of you that you're not happy with what you're told to be doing And ultimately, it is calling into question your trust in the one who is calling you to obey. Let me me share you the story of a a man who dreamed about joining a monastery. His his goal in life was to become a monk. And so he he finds a monastery that he thinks might work for him. And he asked the head monk, you know, what what do I need to do to join? And what he heard was far more difficult than he ever anticipated. But the head monk said this. He said, our monks are only allowed to say two words every year. And that, that guy, he, said, he thought that was a really tough assignment, but he thought, you know, I'm, I, I want to be a monk so badly, I, thought I'd get, I think I'll give it a try. So they, they show him to his room, 
And for the next 12 months, he never says a word. And on the first anniversary of him being there, they bring him out and allow him to say his two words for the year. And this is what he said, food's bad. (laughs) He goes back to his room, continues the monastic lifestyle. 12 more months pass by. And on the anniversary, the second anniversary, they bring him out. All right, you get two more words. And he said, bed's hard. They send him back and he continues for another year and after 12 more months pass, this time he comes out and he says his next two words. He says, I quit. (laughs) And the head monk said, well, I'm not surprised all you've done is complain since you've been here. So (laughs) we make light of that, but you know this is true for us sometimes as Christians. It's not true for all of us. And oftentimes those who complain and grumble the most among us have no idea that they're that way it's an amazing thing if you were to ask them who do you think complains the most well they may be pointing elsewhere but they're not pointing at themselves so many of us if we're not careful because we have it so good we find ourselves complaining and and all we do is complain and grumble over this and question that and listen as a pastor it comes with the territory of someone that has something they want to share with me it's interesting Um, there are some who will come and they're always affirming and then there are others who the only time they come see me is when they got a complaint right and uh, I had someone come by it's been a long time so there's nobody that's in this room right now but I had somebody come by and they actually brought out a list a notebook it was a small little notebook and they for for 30 minutes they were flipping to the next complaint the next complaint I'd only been here six weeks right and like this and whenever I have someone that comes to me like that, it's not that I, we don't want to hear concerns. I, I, we certainly do. Um, but when I hear someone, all they have to offer are complaints and questioning. Uh, it, it, what, what I will often ask them is this. So what good things are going on? I hear what you say here, and I, I want to address these, but tell me what good things are going on? And I find that the persons who often have a list of complaints never have a list of good things. They don't even have a list of one. Grumbling and questioning, friends, you need to hear this, are truly a sign of immaturity, spiritually speaking. Because when all you do is complain about things, it's, it's really announcing that you're not getting your way. That, that others are not conforming to your way of doing things, the way you think things should be done. Let me also say this, not only is it a sign of spiritual immaturity if all you do is complain and question and grumble, but it is also throwing shade upon Christ. It is throwing shade upon the faith. It is a harming of your witness, your testimony. When all you do is complain, while at the same time taking on the name of Christ, you're identifying your complaints with Christ to those who are on the outside. Look at verse 15 and 16. Here's what Paul uh, says. He says, don't complain. He says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent. You have a habit of underlining in Scripture. Those are two very important words. Don't do this in your response, in your obedience, and in the pressure to, to give up your obedience and your fellowship of Christ that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. 
Now these words of Paul echo descriptions of the Israelites in the wilderness during Moses' day. Do you remember this story? When God had delivered them out of Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness. And then out there, all they did, the God that was providing for them, all they ever did was grumble and complain. In fact, verse 15 is really quoting the words of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5. Let me read them to you. They have dealt corruptly with them. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And so Paul was saying, don't be like that twisted and, and uh, 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 crooked generation. Don't, don't be grumbling and complaining. Don't act as if you are the center of the universe and as if the rest of the world revolves around you. <clears throat> don't even think that way. Instead, just obey. Obey. Our attitudes as we live out our faith, which is reflected in what we say and how we think, it marks us. It marks our faith. It distinguishes us from the rest of the world. And as Paul describes it, we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And friends, it's still true today. We live in a twisted and crooked generation. And so as Christians, we ought to stand out from the culture around us. So often we find ourselves trying to be accepted by the culture when we're told often that we need to be distinct from the culture. And when we grumble and complain and we question, we are showing that we're no different than the rest of the world. We're just as selfish as everyone else, just as self-centered, and it's all about us and not the Lord. But Paul says, look, that's not how you are to be. Remember, you are lights in this world, different and distinct in your thinking like stars lighting up the sky. So protect your witness. Let me share with you one last challenge from this text on how to obey no matter what, and that is this, be the sacrifice. Be the sacrifice. Note that I say to you, don't just be sacrificial, which is a good thing to do, but go beyond that and be willing yourself to be the sacrifice. Be obedient even unto death if necessary. Verse 17, Paul writes, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, Paul is writing these words. Remember, he is under house arrest. He doesn't know what the future holds for himself. Uh, at any moment, on any day, he could be dragged out into the streets to, to the place of execution and his life ended. He doesn't know his current situation, how it is going to turn out. And he is in that situation because of his faith in Jesus and he says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad. Paul is saying, look, it is okay to be a sacrifice. In fact, Paul's moved away from direct commands here. Instead, he's offering up his own example, his own life as a testimony. And he's saying, sacrifice yourself. If necessary, sacrifice yourself. He's talking about being willing and his willingness to die for the cause of Christ even if it means laying down his life for it. And he mentions this, this uh, concept of a drink offering. A drink offering was an Old Testament uh, sacrifice. It was a, a means of, of worship for the Jews in the Old Testament, for Jews to worship under the Judaic law. We, we, we're not called to do that today. But the book of Numbers describes what a drink offering looks like. Let me read it to you in Numbers chapter 15, verses 5 through 7. There the command was this, you shall offer up the burnt offering or, or for the sacrifice a quarter of, of hen of wine, 
for the drink offering for each lamb. Or for a ram, you shall offer a, a grain offering, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of hen of oil. And for the drink offering, you shall offer a third of a hen of wine, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So that's where that comes from, this idea of a drink offering. And Paul is a Jew and he's, who was familiar with this as a part of Judaic worship. And uh, many of the believers in Philippi uh, were Jews and would have understand this. And so a drink offering was sometimes made just like a blood offering. It was a sacrificial gift made to the Lord as an act of, of worship. And so when Paul talks about his life being poured out as a drink offering, Paul was saying, I have no problem as a believer and a follower, believer in and a follower of Jesus Christ, of sacrificing my life for Jesus. If my life needs to be poured out like a drink offering and in my life in this world ends, so be it. If so, I'll be glad and I will rejoice. So often when we think of sacrificing today, we think of our wealth. And listen, it's, it's proper for us uh, to give and to give back to the Lord and to give sacrificially. But it's far more than that. This call that Paul is talking about here is far more than surrendering some of your wealth. It is a willingness to give up your very life if Christ demands it. It is a willingness to lay your life into the hands of the Lord if He requests it leaving everything that we have and own and giving it over to Him. Sadly, I think so few of us truly understand this anymore. We, we have it so good in this country. And listen, I know our country is struggling right now and, and perspective is everything, but I, th- I, I sometimes think those of us in the Western culture, we truly don't understand what sacrifice and living with, the, with the, the possibility of handing your life over for the cause of Christ really, really means. So few of us understand it or even want to understand it. You often see it, in, and it's really reflected in the way they give back to the Lord and, and their unwillingness to, to move into uncomfortable places um, and, and the selfishness that marks so many of us. And you, you really see so few of us being defined by sacrifice anymore. And you rarely hear stories like that of Abraham Benninger. You may not know his story, so I'm going to share it with you. He was born in Switzerland in the late 1700s, and he and his parents boarded a ship and were making their way to America, and it was during the the journey across the Atlantic Ocean that both his mother and father passed away, and suddenly he found himself alone in a strange land. He was probably 10 or 11 years of age at at the time of their passing, but he never let those misfortunes that befell him hold him back. And so as he grew up, he, he held on to his faith in Christ, and became a follower of Jesus. And along his journey of faith and fellowship of Christ, he heard, began to hear of the great misery and poverty that was happening among the slaves on St. Thomas Island. And he felt compelled to go there to preach the gospel. But once he arrived there, he, he discovered that only slaves were allowed to preach to, to slaves. That was the law of the land in that day. And so plantation owners, the reason why this was the case, they wanted to keep the slaves in ignorance and superstition. And if they could do that, then they would, they would hold, be able to keep them enslaved. And so and knowing that he couldn't go and share the gospel with the slaves there in St. Thomas Island, it wasn't long after that that the governor received a letter from Benninger. And in the letter, he pleaded to the governor asking him to allow himself to become a slave for the, less, for the rest of his life. Can you imagine that? He promised that he would serve as a slave faithfully to the end of his days. 
And then he would give up his free time when he was allowed the free time as a slave to preach to the other slaves. Well, the, the governor of that, of that island forwarded his letter to the king of Denmark. The king of Denmark was so touched by Benninger's uh, willingness to sacrifice himself that he gave him particularly the freedom to preach the gospel to whomever he wanted. Isn't that an incredible story? Now you and I, we both know we're supposed to share the gospel, right? Now what if you knew that there was a people group in this world somewhere that only those who were part of that people group would be able to go and to share the gospel and maybe it was to become a slave. What would you do? Knowing that you and I, we're supposed to take the gospel to the nations to all people. And I wonder when we see stories like this, I wonder where are the other stories like this today? I mean, this is a few hundred years ago. And, and listen, they are out there. We, we, we see them in the lives and the testimonies of our missionaries. But how often do we hear about those who were, uh, of it of those who are si- sitting in our pews, the typical Christian? Not very often. And I say this to myself as well. But Christian, hear Paul on this. And listen, I'm, I'm listening to this too because I need this just as much as anyone in this room. Paul is saying here that we need to be the sacrifice. We need to be willing if Christ demands it, if he needs for us to do so, to yield our very lives, to give up our wants, our desires, our pursuits, and to surrender them all to Christ. And if we do so, that it would be a source of joy in doing so. I mean, we we think if I sacrifice, I'm going to miss out so much. Well, let me tell you, your lack of willingness to sacrifice means you might miss out on something significant, and that is the joy of the Lord. Again, look at verse 17. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, Paul says, I am glad. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It's as plain as plain can be. As hard as it may seem to you and to me to to be willing to lay down our lives, to give up every hope and dream for Christ if He so desires it. It is plain as plain can be that being the sacrifice is a source of joy. Listen, I know it can be tough sometimes. It's probably far less tough for us than other believers in other parts of the world, in certain places in the world. But you and I, we can follow Jesus and we can obey Him. But if we're going to do it, we've got to work out our salvation. We can't wait till the pressure is on. Today we need to continue to walk in obedience in a sacrificial, sanctified life. And as we do so, let's keep our eyes on Jesus and what He is intending to do through it. Let's protect our witness and be careful of how we're speaking, knowing that it is bearing testimony of our faith in Christ. And yes, friend, when the pressure is on, be the sacrifice if needed. Why? Well, it goes all the way back to verse 8 of chapter 2. Because Jesus was the sacrifice for you. Jesus died for you. Will you be willing to be the sacrifice for Him? Let's pray together. Lord, I, I pray that as we walk away from this text today, that we will see the significance of obedience. Lord, we know we are not saved because we are good people. We know that. We are saved because you are good. You are perfect. You are sinless and you came to die for our sins, to do for us 
what we could not do. You died in our place, taking the penalty of our sin upon yourself so that any person who would believe and trust in you and follow after you would be saved. You would redeem us and we would be forgiven to a life of following after you. And so, Lord, I pray that you encourage us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling every single day, knowing that you did the work, but now you are calling us to live as if we've been redeemed. And Lord, in that, help us with our attitudes. Change how we speak about our circumstances, how we think about what we're going through. And let us not whine and moan and complain and gripe when things don't go our way, but recognize that as we pursue you, Lord, it's going to put us in difficult places, uncomfortable places, but that might just be the sign that we are in the center of your will. And Lord, knowing that the ultimate consequence in this life could be the, the laying down of our lives, let us be willing to do so if necessary. Let us be willing to sacrifice all the way up to and through our death because, Lord, you did that very thing for us. And Lord, I pray if there be anyone here today that does not know you, that they would truly today recognize what you have done for them, that you have done all the work to make salvation possible for them. Save them, Lord, so they can begin a life of sanctification in you. This we pray. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.